Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events, and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Uh, today I'm with uh, Dr. with Dr. David Weisberg. Um, now, uh, Dr. Weisberg um, has a few different appointments, but par- particularly uh, is a distinguished professor at George Mason University, um, also the executive director there of the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy, which is really going to lead us into where we want to go. But interestingly enough, before we started recording, um, I asked a couple of questions, but he's also the Walter E. Meyer Professor of Law and Criminal Justice at the Hebrew University Faculty of Law in Jerusalem. So really neat uh, and exciting in that way. But but a, a chief science advisor at the Police Foundation. Um, and so there's some nice ties in there. And of course, a fellow at the, the ASC, the American Society of Criminology, and Academy, the Academy of Experimental Criminology, which again is a particular focus here today. Um, but some really neat and inspiring uh, awards and prizes that are very meaningful to those of us that are in criminology. And, and uh, of course, they you know, always start with the Stockholm Prize in Criminology. Um, but, I, but I like also the, uh, the Israel Prize, uh, which is uh, such a high civilian honor. In fact, I understand uh, the highest. Um, and then we could go on and on, but, uh, you know, different, uh, some awards around the Campbell collaboration, which is critical to bring together experimental research and um, making sure that we've got high quality information for people out there <clears throat> to act on. Um, so what I'd like to do, uh, David, if I might, is go a little bit over to first this description of science or evidence-based policing. And, you know, you may or may not know my father and grandfather being physicians. I started reading their journals, believe it or not, and hearing the term as I was growing up, evidence-based practice, and seeing that my dad being a primary care, uh, every time I go in his office, he had all the journals open with paper clips and making notes. And of course, he had to read every journal. Um, But so I had an appreciation but didn't link it to what the area we're involved in now. Can I kind of go over to you, David, if I might? Your take, your description, as it stands now at the end of this bizarre year called 2020 of evidence-based policing. The idea of evidence policing, as you noted, is drawn in part from medicine. When Larry Sherman first raised the idea of evidence-based policing in a, a series at the Police Foundation that I actually was that was developing at the time uh, called Ideas in Policing. Uh, So it comes from the medical idea uh, in part, and the idea simply was that we ought to be making decisions about practice uh, based on evidence, not just on gut feelings, not just on what happened before in tradition, but we should be making informed decisions using science. And, And I wanna emphasize that idea of using science. Uh, And the reason is because essentially evidence-based policing is about the integration of science into policing. Uh, I wrote a piece with uh, Peter Nehrud 
we called it science and policing uh, because we think that the essential ingredient of the evidence-based policing movement is the idea of bringing science into policing. And science includes evaluations of what the police do. It includes basic research to understand the elements under, uh, underlying the crime problem, uh, includes evidence about or studies of the services the police bring and how they bring those services. And I should note that recently, Peter and I have written an article in which we've said that to add to that, it also brings the science of ethics. For example, medical ethics is a very important aspect of science and medicine. That's, that's fantastic. And I, I want to ask you a specific question, if I could, David. Uh, with evidence-based, and when you, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's thrown around, it's used carefully and, and probably correctly, uh, but to me, and just going back to the basics in, say, grad school, the scientific model it includes logic and evidence, and, um, and so I think uh, in, in my talking with practitioners and working with them, that's part of what we, we talk a lot about both. Hey, you need a framework, you need a logic model. And you need evidence, not just evidence or not just a framework. What What are your thoughts on that? I, uh, am I on the right track or how would you advise and what are your thoughts around that? Look, one thing that happens when people talk about evidence-based policing or evidence-based medicine is they tend to focus on the importance of experimental evidence in drawing conclusions about treatments or programs or strategies or practices. Uh, but science involves a lot of other activities. As I noted, basic science to understand the mechanisms underlying problems so you can develop solutions that work. It includes a whole series of different types of methodologies as well. And I think this is where some of the confusion comes from. I, I once uh, uh, said to someone, I was talking about evidence-based uh, 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 criminal justice more generally, and they said, David, what do you think? They weren't doing evidence-based work uh, before this idea came along? Uh, we think we have evidence as well. And this is one of the confusions. Uh, what do you mean by evidence? When I talk about science, there's a fairly uh, well understood idea about what constitutes good evidence. And uh, in, in that context, uh, uh, we bring these different approaches because different approaches are used to understand problems and do something about them. But we also recognize that there's, if you like, a hierarchy of evidence in science. Some evidence is stronger than others, and that we accept that as we accept the general idea of science and policing. No, good. I, I love it. it it's not, we're not focused on experimental designs. We're focused on better understanding why something's happening and then, okay, what can we do about it? And then let's trial that. Uh, but there's this logic, what the, the action mechanisms that create, I guess, the, the underlying mechanisms and then the mechanisms of action of what we're trying to. You, you can't do good, Reed, you can't do good experimental research without good basic science. Uh, because essentially experiments are the best way to learn something. If I want to know whether one treatment is better than another, or whether a treatment works, field experiments, randomized experiments are the best method to do that. There's no argument statistically, if you like. That is the best method. But experiments are narrow. You have to, you have to know what you're studying. So you can carry out your experiment in such a way to see whether that works. Experiments are not open. They're not broad. They're usually very narrow. That's the way they develop. They're narrow, but would they give you very good answers to the problems that you're looking at? Well, that means you have to have a very informed effort 
on what the treatments, practices, programs, policies that you want to test experimentally. So I th- I see these things as interacting. The problems come when people start saying, well, you know, maybe experiments are not the best way to do it. Uh, you know, why is experiments better? In other words, uh, in a sense, science provides answers to those problems. Experiments are better because of underlying statistical theory that tells us when you use randomized design, you get a more solid answer. There's fewer threats to the validity of that answer. There's fewer threats to its believability. So in that context, experiments are the best way to get the answer about whether this or that program works. It's not the only way to get information and learn. And people often get these things mixed up. I, it's not a, there's no battle when it comes to statistics, if you like, no battle The randomized experiments provide a stronger method for reaching conclusions. However, sometimes we're looking for different types of knowledge. Sometimes we can't use that method and we have to use others. And then we have to think about how close those other methods get to providing believable conclusions. I like it and, and learning from you and, and Larry and many others, but, but particularly reading some of your research and your books, um, you know, that's what we've tried to adapt here. And we've tried to understand, okay, let's, let's take, let's zoom in and zoom out. That, I think that's a big part of this. All right. What we're, we're having this loss issue or this uh, intimidation or um, whatever serious uh, violence issue, let's understand where's it happening on a macro level. Let's move through into the micro level. Let's, Let's interview and talk to the people involved on both sides, the red and the green, we call them, um, and the victim and the victimizer. Let's understand. Let's look at video footage. Let's look at what's going on. Let's try and make sense of the world. Um, you know, use observational studies and, and other things to make sense. Now we can start to prescribe where we want to go. What, all right. What really makes sense here to affect the issue, the problem, the mechanisms that we're observing? Um, yeah. And then, like you say, maybe we've got two or three options we want to trial. You know, 2020 is such a horrific time with the pandemic, but it, I'm wondering and hoping one of the things, the positive things are people understanding or thinking a little more about science, but then looking at how all these options are, are all these things that you're describing, David, are taking place. All this science around the underlying mechanisms and how, why each environment, in other words, each body is a little different and whether you get the disease or not and how serious it is and so forth. And then, you know, how, what are we going to do about it? And then how are people differentially responding? So back to you. You've you've done your, you've done yourself some experiments in terms of uh, uh, protecting products and issues of this sort. And, and uh, those experiments, I'm sure under would underlay those experiments is perhaps some qualitative work, as you know, uh, uh, trying to understand why people steal, how they choose what the, uh, um, you know, the kinds of vulnerabilities that they see in stores and other places. Uh, and I'm sure you've also looked at statistics about where in stores you have sales, where in stores things get stolen more often. And then you say, well, look, uh, I'd like to see if I can prevent this and use all that knowledge you've gained using observational studies, using qualitative studies, using statistical studies. You take all that and you build an experiment based on a treatment that you put together uh, based on that. So all these different methods uh, uh, provide an integration to each other. I love it. And I couldn't have said it better. And I think that's the big, the big part of what we're trying to get out here today, David, is, is just this discussion now initially. And look, it, it, science is a process. It's not a thing. It's not a religion. It's a, it's a process. 
but it's it involves a lot of different components. Uh, and they're all complementary to each other, hopefully, as you said. Let's understand now. Let's okay, let's come up with how we want to treat. All right, let's but wait, there could be different dosing options. All right, let's trial that, but but there's a logical reason where we've got what we're doing and why we're going to do it this way. And then let's see, no, okay, that didn't seem to work or work as well. But but because we've identified these things, as you said, David, before the experiment, we have some, as mad scientists, we've got some dials here. Okay, well, I think now I can see what we want to dial instead of, ah, I have no idea what happened or why it didn't. Um, excellent. Um, I, I think another thing that I wanted to ask you about, and I'll never forget, um, in one of my first articles that uh, that you were involved with um, at the Journal of Experimental Crim, uh, and you said, Reed, can you put a little more about the real world in here? It's so important to understand the costs, the cooperation, the participation, all, you know, all the, the dirty underside of research, the real world of research. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you've been involved in so many types of experiments at different scales, might have been at the micro scale. Um, some of your observations I thought would be really, really neat. Well, uh, Reed, are you asking me about the kinds of problems you encounter when you try to carry out? Yes. Yes. The types of problems and how we, how we handle those and not, and so those out there trying to conduct experiments or be participants like an agency, it, this is okay. It's okay. Let's work through this. You know, Reed, I, I'll tell you when I, I, sometimes when I talk about this issue with experiments, I start out with a story. It's, it's actually an Israeli, uh, Israeli joke, if you like. Uh, and it's, it goes this way, that uh, um, this fellow, he dies and he, he goes up to God and God says to him, well, I'm sorry, you're not going to come to heaven. You're going to have to go to hell. But there are two choices or, or two alternatives. And the fellow says, well, well, how can I choose? And he says, God says, well, I'll let you visit each place. And then you'll tell me where you want to spend eternity. And the fellow uh, says, what do I do? And God says, go to sleep. And when you wake up, uh, you'll be in a, a regular hell. And so he goes to sleep. He wakes up and it's fire, brimstones, devils, you know, Dante's Inferno, terrible. And he says, God, God. And God says, what? And uh, um, he says, I'd like to see the other place, Israeli hell. Okay. God says, okay. So go to sleep. You wake up and it's really hell. And he, he wakes up and it's all green rolling hills. Israel is a very beautiful place. Uh, people are, are, are mangling. They're having barbecues and uh, 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 children are dancing the horror, you know, the traditional Israeli dance. And the, the fellow says, God, God. And God says, what? He says, well, great. You know, this is where I want to be in Israeli hell for eternity. And God says, okay, wake up go to sleep and you'll wake up and be in Israeli hell for eternity. So he wakes up and it's worse than the previous place, regular hell, more demons, more fire, more Dante's Inferno. And he says, God, God. And God says, what? He says, this is what isn't where I was yesterday. And God says, yesterday you were a tourist. So <laughs> uh, I think, I think experiments are a little like that. In other words, that uh, in statistical theory, experiments are amazing. Because they give you, if, if the treatment group does better than the control group, there's no reason for that other than the treatment itself, because the treatment has been randomized. So everything else is random, but the application of treatment. But the reality is that experiments suffer from something else, which is they're inflexible to problems. In other words, if you run an experiment, you got to think of everything beforehand. 
That's different than the way traditional research is done, where you get data and then you use statistics and add new data and you correct for the problems you had. In randomized experiments, you can't do that. Everything has got to be set up well at the beginning so you can carry out the experiment with integrity and so that you have relatively few violations, as few as possible, of the experimental regimen. Uh, if you do have violations, you have a problem. There are very few ways to correct for that. So experiments have this great advantage of providing a really solid, believable answer to the question. But they only provide that answer when you cover things all throughout. That means you have to be careful about the number of cases that come into an experiment. A lot of experiments fail because they thought they'd get a lot of cases for randomization, and then they don't. Experiments, you have to be careful that there isn't uh, an overlap of treatment, a contamination, that the treatment group gets treatment and the control group doesn't get treatment. And you have to make sure those two things don't overlap. That sounds easy, but often in, in human relations, people hear about something, they know something, people get put in the wrong group, et cetera. You have to be really careful uh, about those sorts of issues. There's also questions about the dosage involved. I mentioned before that experiments, you have to be well prepared for it. Because let's say that you give in the experiment a, a certain dosage. Let's say it's uh, one day a week of police presence for hotspots. Now let's say the reality is that you need two days to know whether police presence is gonna have an effect a week. But you haven't tested that. You've tested a treatment, usually one treatment, one day a week. So you better make sure the treatment is of high enough dosage that you're gonna get the kind of response you want. Indeed, one of the things we don't do enough of is we don't uh, experiment across dosages, uh, because often because we don't have enough uh, potential opportunities for experiments to identify the correct dosage. But anyway, so I always say that running experiment is a little uh, like the Israeli joke, sort of teasing themselves, if you like, about what it's like to live when the tourists having such a great time, if you like. I should note Israel's a nice place more generally. But nonetheless, I think of it as this joke about Israeli hell, that you think, you know, it's going to be great, and then boom, you find reality. The task is to be well prepared for problems that come along the way. Uh, I love it. Couldn't be more relevant. And I think we've now done, conducted over 32. I know uh, we haven't published them all yet. That's on me. But, um, you know, on the one hand, you feel like a grizzled veteran, or I do at this point. On the other hand, man, you know, uh, every experiment, okay, I didn't, I mean, I no way I saw that coming. And, uh, but we had a really nice one laid out in these uh, drugstore chain, a major one you would know of, um, randomized a selection, randomized to treatment and control. Um, but we actually had uh, three different treatment versions, but one was this display fixture that would provide protective, um, you know, it was a protective device. Uh, well, so the, the here we go and uh, pre-test and then boom, they implement the treatment uh, in those in those arms and not in the other. In our, and so here we go and then uh, we do fidelity checks. We, we do everything the same, as you said, other than the treatment. Uh, and we've hopefully carefully dosed it. And, uh, and we did it in three different ways here. We had the luxury of a, a larger sample size. Uh, but uh, two people in the, uh, I would say placebo, but in the control arm, uh, they, during the fidelity checks, they had this protective fixture. I mean, these are brand new. I don't, how It turns out they had heard about them got online, got some guy in Canada to man, to fabricate these things. And they put them in because of our checks, we knew about it. And as you know, then we had the dilemma, do you intention to treat? Do we, do we report as is? Cause now they're diluting. Um, 
and uh, or do we report them, you know, move them over to, to the treatment arm? Of course, we report it both ways. So any thoughts on that? But that's maybe in a real world example, like you got to be kidding me. But first of all, one thing I'd say is that maybe read after this interview, we could talk for a moment because I have an idea about something else for you. But um, I, th I think the, that experiments, you, you might say the issue with experiments is that to the extent that there's fidelity to the experimental design is the extent to which the results can be believed. The closer it gets to the perfect situation, the more believable things get. The real world is full of problems. Look at COVID. I have two experiments going on in the field. And boy, have those changes as a result of COVID, both in terms of data collection and in terms of the treatments involved. So the real world, when you're doing field experiments, as you know, the real world can create problems. By the way, there are some statistical solutions, like in the case you have, I don't think you have enough of a crossover to create really serious problems, but the uh, there was a, a fellow named, uh, there is a fellow named Angrist, an economist, who developed an idea using instrumental variables uh, uh, to deal with the problems you have. So. Uh, there was an article in the Journal of Experimental Criminology about that when I was editor. Well, we can talk about it another time. But there are often, you can often try to use some statistical solutions, but experiments are, are a bit inflexible. What do you do? The example you gave, uh, you have two people cross over to another group. What do you do now? You can't, you know, you can't just control out for that. It's not very easily angry, it's just one method. Uh, you're kind of stuck. Either you treat them as treatment cases or control cases. And of course, the, the general consensus is you treat them as they were randomized, irrespective of what happened to them. That's the more conservative approach. Yep. And we took a gamble and we got it through reporting it both ways. But um, and I can only imagine, yeah, it, during the pandemic, we've we've had to do things virtually or get people to point out things on life-size boards while we're behind plexiglass in the field. But uh, you keep moving and adjusting um, and adapting. So this is a great conversation. And um, and I really wanted to touch on that real, real world aspect. And But I, I, I want to ask you too, a little bit about say law enforcement agencies. I have a little more cooperation, not, as, not a lot more from these companies that we work with, if you will, rather than an agency. Um, and we're again, working in a, in a micro environment. So we have somewhat less conflict than if we're ranging across precincts or different geo, you know, spatial uh, metrics or whatever areas. Um, but how do you deal with some of those things? Any advice, David, on some ways that you can get the agency to really be excited uh, and participate, cooperate at the level that allows some good science to get some of that, that the results that they really need and we all need as citizens? Yeah, I think that I'll start with policing and then go beyond. But I think in policing, there's, you know, a number of us have suggested the importance of police getting training and education that makes them understand why experimentation, why evidence is so important to what they do. Uh, you met, we mentioned medicine before. One of the advantages of medicine is that all the medical professionals, professionals have to go to medical school. And those schools are the people doing research. So the idea of evidence gets a great deal of support uh, in, in their education. And it's also the case that they learn why, for example, experiments are better than other sorts of approaches for answering questions about what works. So uh, there's a long way to go in, 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 in uh, medicine. John Shepard, who received the Stockholm Prize for his work on uh, trying to create uh, or develop bottles that would cause fewer facial uh, injuries. He's 
been developing over years in the UK, programs for integrating uh, science, if you like, into the education of police officers. I think it's something slowly happening. Uh, there's a lot of resistance in the US. Some of that comes from unions who want to say that, you know, uh, we didn't need a college degree when we became police officers. Uh, and so there's resistance to educational requirements. But educational requirements themselves won't necessarily do it because that education has to be an education that emphasizes the importance of science and evidence-based policing. So it's, it's not just getting them into college, it's getting them into programs which those things are taught and learned. In other areas, I think a, a lot depends on the area and who you're dealing with. When you're, when you're dealing in, in some areas where people's educations have graduate school educations, et cetera, they have some contact with research, that can make it uh, easier. Uh, uh, unfortunately, many people in business and other areas may or may not have that uh, those sorts of backgrounds. Uh, I would hope in many of the programs they went to, they would. Uh, part of it, I think, is uh, you know, in the policing area, when I first, uh, the first experiment I ran with Larry Sherman back in 1995, it was like a randomized experiment in policing. It was a crazy radical idea. And we had Tony Boza, who was a police chief that was cra crazy and radical. I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, we thought outside the box. Uh, I think now there are more and more police that are understanding the importance of evidence and the importance of, of, of uh, using science and what they do. So things are changing. Uh, there's still a long way to go. It sounds like you're also having some pushback. Yeah, I, you know, maybe it's human nature. Um, you know, I like science when it's something I agree with and not when it's the opposite, not so much. But um, yeah, by and large, there is some agreement. The problem we run into also is this, the Six Sigma and some of, the, uh, some of these, uh, you know, efficiency, uh, exercises that are out there or processes that are out there um, that really aren't very scientific. You know, they do force you to, to do close examination and try and better understand mechanisms and what, you know, the, the dynamics that are occurring. But, but when it comes to better sampling and, as you know, measurement and, and analytics, um, not so much. And so sometimes we'll have that, well, here you go, here are your test scores. Wait, wait, wait a minute, what? So, uh, but so it's that kind of thing. It's not that necessarily battling the people we work with, the equivalent of the police chiefs, but rather people embedded in the organization that it's their role to assess and analyze, you know, changes that you're going to make. And uh, I, I, yeah. I think it was Keyes, an, an economist, a famous economist once said, uh, the reason why uh, policymakers don't like evidence is because it makes reaching conclusions more difficult. In other words, that yeah. if you can just reach conclusions on the basis of your of your stomach feelings, uh, that's pretty easy. You can move pretty quickly, and evidence might hold you up. And I think here we have some elements that relate both to the researchers and practitioners. You know, uh, we have to develop evidence in ways that are useful and timely, right? That doesn't always happen. And uh, we have to provide a, a good case for why evidence is important. You know, one case I've always thought of is that many police practices that, that are very exciting in the beginning and brought out by uh, specific uh, chiefs, you know, get a lot of publicity and then a lot of people adopt them. And then scholars look at it and then they, uh, and they find that it really didn't work. <laughs> it didn't right. have the thought. And so it's sort of a circular type of thing. So I always say, wouldn't you rather know earlier on uh, uh, what some of those outcomes are rather than sort of go, 
go all in and find out that it really doesn't do very much. Um, this takes a commitment from practitioners because, you know, uh, another story, I, I, uh, Hubert Williams, who uh, passed away uh, uh, recently, was, was a great guy. And he, he and I went to New York City when I was working with the Police Foundation. Uh, and we, we, it was during the, comps, the beginning of the Comstead area after Bratton. And we went to the commissioner and we tried to convince him to allow us to do a, a study of Comstead of the effectiveness of Comstead. I explained to him that the data they were using so far was not very convincing. The, for example, the murder data because other states are having similar declines. And uh, at that point, the commissioner turned around to me and he said, David, you can only bring me bad news. I mean, he was, Comstead was on the cover of Time Magazine, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Everybody knew that Comstead was a great success. So from his view, why would he do research on it? It's, you know, it doesn't help him, right? right. Everybody loves him, right? So, uh, and I thought about that afterwards. And I, and I thought that part of what we have to do is make practitioners understand they have, if you like, a moral responsibility, especially in policing. In business, maybe a little different, but the, they, they have a moral responsibility. We, we wouldn't like it if a hospital that was giving treatment for breast cancer refused to do research to see whether those treatments actually worked, right? We would think that was wrong. That would really worry us, right? I think it's the same thing in policing. That kind of attitude, if you can only bring me bad news, is something we really want to avoid. Now, it's also the case, besides the moral element, there is an economic and an efficiency element. The, uh, uh, if, you carry, use, if you use evaluation, science, you will, you, will, you will be in a better position to make the case that the treatments work if they do work. And, you know, in the end, I've seen this uh, uh, in different countries, that the ability to bring evidence uh, also today, many policymakers, many elected officials, they understand the importance of evaluation of science, of knowing whether something would work, of seeing evidence. So if you take the lead in that as a practitioner, it gives you an advantage, I think, in the long run. Now, those are all great uh, insights. And I like that, you know, that some people get wedded to these ideas. They don't, um, things are fixed in place and time, but you, you know, I think we all know too, even the news cycle. Okay. You know, you've got some, you've got some good, uh, pub out there, some publicity, but you know, I don't think anybody's going to really remember it. Let's keep going. But I think some of the things we've been doing is, Hey, we're, we're actually really are here to work with you to help you improve the outcomes. Uh, we want you, not us to be the hero if we can help do that. And we also try and, and uh, identify and, groom and form, if you will, a champion, an inside champion uh, for the idea and include them in planning, help them understand the logic. Hey, you know, here, here's some other options and they, they'll, they'll do these small tests with a handful of places. They, they you know, the those with extreme values, which, you know, regression, the mean or whatever issues and confounding all around, but normally you can win them over. They're more and more interested. Um, I think the other thing is they're more interested if they're not paying for the exercise itself. Uh, in our case, we're, we're blessed in that the solution providers, the treatment developers and implementers, they have budgets now. And more and more, the decision makers are saying, you know, I, I kind of want this good housekeeping seal of approval. I'd like to see this go through some more rigorous evaluation because uh, before I adopt this. Um, but their losses are high. It's sort of like you said, if murder rates are all up or down, for example, if they're up, and they're up everywhere, that gives them a little bit of cover to say, hey, I'd like to do something differently. Uh, and it's not just me. Um, so interesting dynamics. 
very helpful. Thank you for listening to our podcast discussion with David Weisberg. We will continue our conversation in a second part with our future guest next week. Please stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.